Thank you very much for joining today's episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. My guest today is Eric Way, and we will be discussing a number of very exciting um, aspects to diversity and inclusion. And very interestingly, Eric has an unusual background uh, to diversity and inclusion because he is coming from engineering and we'll be talking about why that is an asset and why that makes it so special. Um, Eric is the Global Head of Inclusion, Diversity and CSR at Schindler Group. This is a company that's best known, I guess, for the elevators and um, escalators around the world. As I said, he has a background in engineering, previously worked for Volvo in product management, uh, product planning, as well as Renault Trucks um, and other companies. So if you are interested in how an organization that is primarily um, engineering and primarily um, male-dominated, how they're trying to attract uh, female talent as well as retain them, then this episode is definitely for you. But more than that, we explore very interesting aspects of uh, inclusion and diversity with Eric uh, sharing his insight and experiences very generously with the listeners. So enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. So welcome to the listeners and our audience to this audio and video podcast of the Work Life Hub. My guest today is Eric Howard Way. Uh, and I'm so happy you're here and we're speaking today. So thank you very much, Eric, to, you know, coming on, on the podcast. Thank you, Agnes. I'm very happy to be here and, uh, and share with you today and have a dialogue. So uh, the reason why we have you, Eric, and we really were keen on having you is uh, a different reasons for that. So you're heading the, the Diversity Inclusion Initiative globally for Schindler, the engineering company people may know from elevators and, and escalators. I mean, that's where I, I know this company from. That's right. Um, and, and also because you have a very interesting background. Uh, and I want to, to maybe kick off with that and, and ask you first how you transitioned from an engineering background uh, to diversity and inclusion, which is not the usual pathway, I would say. Mm. Yes. And where do you find that these two a little bit distinct arms, you know, reinforce each other and nourish each other and help you think maybe out of the box? Mm. Yes, it's a, it's a very good question. It's true. There's not many of us, but there are a few who have uh, engineering backgrounds that have come into this field. And ever since I was four years old, I grew up in the United States. I'm American originally. And ever since I was four years old, I knew I wanted to be an engineer. I knew, you know what type of engineering school I wanted to go to. And along the way, I actually became interested in languages. I started taking French and somehow linguistics, languages that just really fascinated me. So I sort of kept both of these interests going parallel. That ended up uh, creating an opportunity for me to move to France during my studies. I ended up staying here. And so I was exposed to this diversity of cultures almost by default. You know, I was more interested in the language. I wasn't so much interested in just going to another country or, or those aspects uh, and really became, you know, nourished, uh, piqued my curiosity. So I think that's one element where I started to see how, you know, this diversity of an environment, this multiculturalism could have an impact. And the company I was working in, so that was in the automotive field in heavy trucks and the Renault first Renault group, and then that became part of the Volvo group. I More and more, there were these mergers between, you know, the, the Volvo ended up buying the truck business from Renault trucks. We had operations in the United States, in Japan. And I thought this was wonderful, but I saw that we were having trouble working together. Uh, I also saw how I had trouble initially adapting to French culture. Uh, I, I didn't understand why things didn't work exactly the way they needed to. 
And we didn't have the language of inclusion or diversity at the time, those, that vocabulary. But I came to find out that's really what the situation was. We had this diversity, but we didn't have the inclusion. And I got interested in this mainly by reading a book, Good to Great, by Jim Collins, who talks about how companies go from being sort of average to being great. And it was about having this common purpose and common values. And I realized that that was a way that we could create this inclusion that we needed. So I think what happened is it connected, the topic connected with my engineer problem-solving issue. You know, I saw this problem of this, this untapped potential, this inefficiency, and I wanted to do something about it. Uh, so that's really how I got into it. I applied for the position, and this was in the Volvo Group in 2012, literally at the last minute, because I was completely unsure that this was the right choice for me. Could I leave the technical world? You know, would uh, would I miss that? And what I found out is there are actually very complicated Excel sheets in HR, and especially working with diversity and inclusion. There are many numerical equations we need to solve. Uh, what was also helpful is having worked in product planning, which doesn't sound so sexy, but it's it's very strategic and interesting because you have to understand what are the needs of the customer. So I knew how to speak to the business. And the person who hired me, I was convinced they would never hire me because I was an engineer uh, for this role. She said, you will know how to speak to engineers uh, you know, in an engineering company. So I think that is a perspective that I take on this. And this field has many different backgrounds. There are people who I know people who are anthropologists, psychologists, HR backgrounds, and it's very complementary how people bring that element of their professional background into it and give a bit of a different focus to the work. I love it. And and I think it's so true that 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 how enriching it is to to come from all these different backgrounds. And that's why uh, I think it's um it's so important to have these conversations like we have with you now because we can inspire others, you know, who who maybe feel like, oh, this is not for me because I'm not coming from HR, even if maybe they are super passionate about this. Um, because I think, still think that we need to really encourage much more people who come from, you know, who want to be allies, who want to who just have a personal maybe passion and, and interest in the subject, on, uh, whether they come from engineering or, or other backgrounds. So I think that's that's a really inspiring uh, story that you just shared and very inspiring pathway. Um, because I also saw from your profile on LinkedIn, because I always research my guests, that, <laughs> that you have quite a strong coaching background as well, right? Mm, yeah. And, I, you know, that's where the book I mentioned and this journey about creating this common values, et cetera, really, that's what inspired me to go for this coaching certification outside the company. And it is there I learned the tools that I use every day. It's about change management. It's about frame of reference. It's it's really a way of how do we connect with people and get people also to talk about uncomfortable things. That's a yes. lot of what coaching is about. Absolutely. You know, what's the reality that we don't dare to look at? That's that's you can sum up coaching uh, in a sentence like that. Uh, so yes, that's been a very big help for me, and I rely on those tools all the time to get into this topic and to see how we create the change. So, uh, because now you're heading the global DNI initiative for Schindler, uh, would you like to explain a little bit to to uh, our our audience? Uh, Schindler as a company, maybe a little bit the context, so that when we talk about specific initiatives, they will have a bit of a background and understand the sure. you know you know what context this is all situated in. Yeah, uh, you know, as a mechanical engineer, I love working for an elevator company. You know, there's lots of mechanical things happening, so I was really excited to to take on this journey after the automotive sector, which is also you know wonderful to work in as a mechanical engineer. We move 1.5 billion people every day with our products. It's, it's pretty amazing. And what I also love, and it's very interesting, we and a lot of our, you know, our competitors in the elevator industry, we tend to forget how much of a mission we have in creating mobility solutions. But that is our business. You know, I love talking to our technicians, and they can exactly tell you, you know, for, for instance, someone in a wheelchair, how do they need to maneuver to get into the elevator to be able to reach the buttons? You know, they're really thinking inclusively. Uh, so that's a real part of our business. 
What also surprised me a bit in joining Schindler is that, yes, we're an engineering company. Yes, we're a manufacturing company, but it's especially a service company uh, because we are doing a lot of our business is about servicing elevators. In something like the automotive industry, factories and the engineering office are a big part of the culture. Uh, the customer comes along after that. You know, you don't really know who you're building a car for, who you're building a truck for. You know, you may have a name, but you've never met the customer. Mm. When our technicians go to install an elevator, you know, the, our assembly line is actually the elevator shaft. So you're mm-hmm. already at the customer's site. So it's a it's a really interesting industry in that the customer is very present here, even though it's a, a mechanical, you know, let's say engineering mm-hmm. company. Um, we have uh, 64,000 employees worldwide, so we're very international, a big size corporation, and you know, of course, that presents uh, challenges as well in terms of inclusion and diversity. Great. Now, uh, just touching on this last point that you said about being a global company, um, and you know, are there? Do you see? Because. I would, uh, in my mind, you know, global corporations have policies decide on the global level because they want to, you know, firm up the culture. They want to, you know, have one company. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are so many different local differences um, between local legislations around working parents or LGBTQ plus rights or even how uh, they are viewed and included in society. So for you, how do you embrace this challenge and and where do you maybe see the differences between, let's say, the US or Europe or or where do you see some of the most um, exciting challenges or Mm. differences where you think, okay, this is something that I would like to solve or focus on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is a, a wonderful challenge to work on this topic globally, and the diversity element is rather complicated. However, what I've discovered is the inclusion element is truly universal. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this through, for instance, training materials, which I've been very surprised. They, they actually can be universal in many ways. We've been able to take the same concepts, the same uh, exercises we give people and use it across the world when we're talking about inclusion. So the idea is that they, you know, we have this common way of looking at inclusion. How do I reach out to other people? What does inclusion mean? Um, and then the diversity element is going to be more local because we have different attitudes on gender in different cultures, different attitudes around LGBT people, uh, the legal situation, et cetera, just as you mentioned, even what we can measure. That's one of the complications Mm. is that even something like disabilities, which there's nothing controversial about disabilities uh, in many countries, we can't measure it Mm -hmm. because it's, there's a fear. It could be a way of discriminating rather than the opposite. So we really push the principle out to the countries, and then it's up to each country to really put into place what is, uh, you know, to address the biggest gaps in that country, let's say. It's not always the same gaps. And yeah. it's obviously easier for a country to work on disabilities, let's say, if they already have a way of measuring it. Uh, so that can be perhaps a, a higher priority or bigger focus temporarily than another country. And then Usually that country may be a pioneer, and then we take that best practice and we use it in another country. So a lot of what we do is this best practice sharing, mm-hmm. you know, where a particular topic will have a specific focus in one area. We try to pull that into another country where that element is not as mature, let's say. What has also surprised me is how much more open the world is and how much more aligned it is than we might think. Mm-hmm. Uh, even a topic such as LGBT inclusion, mm-hmm. you know, we have this idea of you know, how would certain countries, especially those of us in Europe, you know, or in the United States, we tend to think that we are in advance on this topic compared to uh, uh, the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. In some ways, yes, that's true. But I think the, we're not in touch with the reality of what's happening in, say, China or India, mm-hmm. uh, Japan, etc. You know, probably a lot of people don't know that the uh, a few years ago, the Japanese prime minister's wife was on a, a gay pride float in the parade. You know, so I think we have a little bit of a disconnect when we think about you know what are the differences and how big are they really in reality. So it's about getting back to that human element that we can all understand. 
there is more and more of a bit of a divide, I would say, between perhaps a European approach and an American approach. And as an American, I'm a little bit concerned about some of the ways, some of the what we're seeing in the United States in this area of, of diversity and inclusion or inclusion and diversity. I think we need to be very careful to keep the space for people to make mistakes. You know, when people have good intentions to say the wrong thing, basically a space for people to learn. Mm-hmm. In this area, it's very important that we feel safe and yes. that we can uh, learn, ask questions. <laughs> the advantage, perhaps, in the United States is that we're able to have conversations about many topics that in other areas of the world are still, still a bit taboo. Uh, in Europe, we know that following all the events that happened in the United States in 2020 around uh, the murder of George Floyd, yeah. this raised a lot of awareness about uh, ethnicity and the impacts and unconscious bias and bias in general. It's a topic that's difficult to talk about in Europe because we tend to think that, well, we should just sort of ignore those differences, treat everyone the same, and the problem will go away. And of course, that might happen very slowly, but we need to be able to open up these conversations. Uh, so there's an element where I think we can learn from the United States and how do we open up these conversations in a safe way, how to res- respect people's privacy. You know, It's not about uh, putting someone on the spot, but it's a, creating an environment where people can open up uh, and share what challenges they might have. Uh, so that's an element that I think is really something we need to find a way to put greater focus on in Europe, even as we've, you know, again, it's not something we can measure. Legally speaking, it's very complicated in Europe to measure people's ethnicity or, you know, there's different, it's a bit of a different dynamic in the United States as it can often be combined with religion. Uh, and, you know, that creates a different mindset for people in terms of inclusion. So, that's really an area where I think we need to do more in terms of being a European company and looking at these problems. Yeah, absolutely. That's what also my impression is. Um, and, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Yes. And, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I think there's this dynamics between inclusion and diversity. And the more you have a critical mass of people who have maybe a shared experience of uh, racism um, against them, they will be able to have a voice and, and 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 start talking about that. But if it's just one or two people in a company, that's not how they want to be perceived. They don't want to exactly. be the lone warriors or the lone... It, it takes exactly. so much courage to open up and share your personal experience, yes. um, you know, to create the platform for an open discussion for everyone if you're the only one. So Exactly. We need to do a little bit more on on building this this mass to to have this uh, possibility. Hmm. You wanted to jump on on this, I see. <laughs> no, it's very true that the you touch on the element of critical mass, and that is a challenge, you know, on gender as well. Uh, so I, I was thinking, what comes to my mind is mentoring. You know, we mm-hmm. often say, well, mentoring is a bit passe now, uh, and I find that. I have found that it is successful mentoring if it's done in the right way, Mm. because mentoring sort of takes the idea that, well, we're going to teach this group of people how to be like the majority. Mm -hmm. And I would say when you're starting out, when you start with very few, let's say, candidates, be it ethnicity or, or gender, you know, it's very difficult. If I came into, let's say, a French organization where all of the management team is French, and I said, you know, maybe you should try to be a bit less French. Why don't you, you know, in your team meetings, be a little bit more American? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they would say, what are you talking about? You know, they wouldn't know how to do it. So we do need we do need to work on representation in parallel as we work on changing the culture. And it's true that mentoring typically helps the, let's say, the uh, the underrepresented groups understand what is this dominant culture, but ultimately what we need to do is change the dominant culture. Mm. You know, uh, we need to get the majority to realize that there are other ways of being, there are other ways of acting, and that maybe we've been conforming ourselves to a certain way. Uh, so that is, I would say, a parallel progress that happens as we bring in the representation. Then we can touch upon these topics about how do we create a gender-balanced culture, not mm. just gender-balanced representation, where Everyone can express emotional intelligence. Everyone has the right to show compassion, 
uh, empathy, uh, these things that we typically, in the, at least in the past, have associated with femininity, let's say, and it yeah. wasn't characteristics that were rewarded by male leaders. Uh, so that's a bit of the goal here, how we go with the culture changing in parallel uh, to the representation improving. And so I think we touched a little bit upon, you know, diversity and inclusion, but maybe the inclusion part is still quite difficult to grasp for people. So so for you, how do you interpret this, uh, this a bit of a fuzzy notion of, of inclusion? Mm. How does that translate in the day-to-day or practical ways of a company? Yes. And it is a, it's a word that's difficult to translate in many languages. Yeah. And even in English, inclusion, I mean, we know it now because we've gotten used to it. You know, as Shakespeare say, what's in a name? Well, it's we've learned to put something behind it. And in many countries, we're still learning how to, you know, what does this mean? What's the right way to talk about it? So inclusion for me, it ultimately comes down to a feeling. Do I feel included? And I have, you know, I've had this question from leaders, so I've really tried to break it down into building blocks. And I would say the first, the foundational level, is for me to feel included. I'm going to come to work at a place where there's not going to be harassment. You know, I'm going to feel safe, physically safe. My my life is important for my manager, for the company, and you know, my well-being in terms of not being harassed, having a, a, a healthy work environment is going to be important. Secondly. I'm going to feel included in an organization that practices equity. In other words, my efforts will pay off just as much as my colleagues, regardless of my personal profile, my gender, my background, my sexual orientation. Uh, then I know that I can, you know, my own personal business case, I can invest my efforts and, and that will pay back. Mm-hmm. The third level of inclusion is belonging. You know, why am I here and not there? What do I do? I have a shared purpose. Do I have solidarity with my colleagues where we can work together and cooperate? Are we in an interdependent mode rather than independent? All of those aspects are going to create this feeling of belonging. Uh, am I appreciated by you know my manager and my colleagues? Do they like me? And then the next level to create inclusion, the next check we have is psychological safety. So in other words, yeah, I can belong, but maybe I feel that. I need to be a little bit careful. You know, maybe there's a mold here to mm-hmm. in order to belong. So, you know, am I going to speak up with my own opinion? Can I disagree without being concerned they're going to say, oh, there's that American guy again, thinks he knows everything. Uh, you know, that I need to be secure, psychologically secure in that belonging in order to fully share this professional side of me and, and be able to disagree. And finally, the ultimate level is what I call authenticity and uniqueness. So it's an organization where we celebrate, we appreciate this uniqueness of everyone. It's not just about you know someone who's in a minority population, but everyone's uniqueness and authenticity is appreciated. You can be your full self. You don't have to cover. And that really releases energy. That's the, the impact, the creativity, so the engagement. So I'd say those are really the five levels mm-hmm. of how I would, you know, put some concrete efforts into uh, or concrete uh, actions into creating inclusion. And I would just say that often we say, can, can we get by with only talking about inclusion? Because mm-hmm. again, you know, it can be, we don't necessarily know how to talk about these other areas. And some people say, do, do I need to specifically talk about underline that someone is from a different race or a different gender? Does it matter? Mm-hmm. And I would say, this is a little bit of a paradox. Uh, I spoke to, to, to one leader and said, no, it doesn't matter whether you hire an engineer that's male or female. Of course, they can do a great job. But it does matter if 95% of your engineers are female or 95% of your engineers are male. Uh, so we have this paradox around differences don't matter on the one hand, and at the same time, we need to appreciate these differences. So if we can't have these conversations and look specifically at different threads of diversity, we're not going to be able to dive in and find out what we're missing. Uh, what would make the organization more inclusive? Uh, so that's why we really have to have both of these elements, the diversity element, looking at different topics, and then how do we, in general, for everyone, create this feeling of inclusion? I really appreciate how you uh, outlined this really succinctly in a very, very structured uh, engineering kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's so hard. You know, that that's the thing that we intellectually we know 
what are the layers, what are what we need to do, but there is still it it then um, you know crashes with human behavior and an incredibly diverse uh, group of people who have had very different upbringing, very different you know biases, very different way of thinking, and to put it into a really really to make it a lived reality at the workplace mm. is is challenging i think it's uh because and i love this dichotomy that you touched mm. upon on not being colorblind but not you know not putting all the let's say the black or brown people in one room and say so this is a leadership development program just for you or or just this is the a female leadership program or you know then oh is it just for moms this ergs we want to support people who may have additional challenges that they need to overcome, but we don't want to label the programs and that they feel singled out. I find it very challenging. How do you do you have something that you apply, a tool, a technique? Mm. Do you what is your reflection on, on how to tackle this actually in, in practice? Mm-hmm. I'd say the first thing is to not try to be perfect. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes I get feedback and say, why do we have a program that's targeting women in leadership? Why do we have a network that's for this? And I said, well, if you have a better solution, tell me. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes there are better ideas, but it's uh, if we do nothing, we know that nothing's going to change. Mm-hmm. So then it's about how do we frame this? You know, and for instance, we actually have a program around promoting women in leadership positions. Mm-hmm. What we've done is to include the managers in the program. So the, it's, a, it's a very much a coaching-based program. The managers also have coaching. So their eyes are being opened. And generally, the, the managers, the, most of the time, are, are male because we have a more male population. So they're learning about these challenges that they, they didn't realize were there before. So it's as much a boosting and an encouragement for this group of women who are not in the majority. And we know, you know, the reason we need to do this is simply because they're not in the majority position or the historical power positions. It is purely an equitable approach to rebalance the outcomes, uh, not special treatment for one group of people. So I think that's a very important way to frame this as well. And then we realize that the, again, as I said, we need to change the dominant culture of the organization. So therefore it's so important that our managers also are learning through this process how to be a sponsor, how to be aware of these extra challenges that this one population might have that were not the same for you. And as you mentioned, it's a complicated thing to get you know each of us to understand how to be inclusive. But I think the key is for us, all of us to realize that we've sort of been taught some ideals that can hold us back. Things like democracy, for instance. Mm-hmm. That sounds great, but after we vote, we do the majority vote, are we concerned about what the minority wanted, mm-hmm, you know, even mm-hmm. in politics? Are we trying to find a solution for everybody? Uh, there's actually something beyond democracy, which is trying to find a consensus or sociocracy. There, there, there are many different models there. Uh, when we are accepting of differences, you know, that's the democracy element, I'm looking at the world through my frame of reference. We even say, treat others the way you would like to be treated. Mm-hmm. What if we treat others the way they want to be treated? So what this requires is to realize, this is the main thing, to realize that I'm looking at the world through my frame of reference and believing that it's universal. Inclusion means I stop that and I realize that there are other frames of reference and those people think those are just as valid as mine is. And that's really what creates this mindset change Mm. where I'm on the lookout to say, this is my point of view. This is my frame of reference. Let me have a little question mark to say, okay, maybe I need to understand this person's frame of reference before I discount what they've said they need, their viewpoint, their opinion, etc. And once we get that habit of saying, okay, let me stop and think, is my frame of reference different from this person's frame of reference? Can I learn something from them? That's the real game changer. Mm. Can I, on, I think, link to this, but can I just maybe go back and ask you about the initiatives to attract and retain mm. more women in an engineering company? A few years ago, yes. we ran a study across Europe on how to include more women in 
uh, STEM and engineering jobs. And one of the main barriers women cited was the, 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 the masculine culture or the, you know, the boys clubs, the bro culture of these companies where they felt like it was very difficult to integrate or they were not seen as equal pars on, on with the male, male leaders. And I specifically would like to ask you, um, and let me know if you're comfortable with this question, uh, about whether there were some setbacks because of the Me Too movement or whether you also see that there is some gender fatigue. Because when we work with other organizations, we now sometimes have, see a bit of a, a backlash of these programs. And, okay, but this year, again, a gender initiative or a women's initiative. We already had that. You know, why do we need that? Or, or men may be thinking, okay, but um, if I put in a mentoring relationship with a female colleague and we have to have these mentoring conversations be- behind closed doors in my office, you know, mm. is there a risk for me? to later be me too or did right. do you yeah do you have any uh, have you had um what are your thoughts about this eric <laughs> okay i would say yeah initially we had some comments about in in that um let's say in that way around me too you know with men saying okay is there going to be a witch hunt now mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I was a bit annoyed at times. I said, well, can we just pause for a second and realize that we've been ignoring a problem for a long time? It's, isn't it terrible what women have been going through all this time and we haven't said anything? And okay, now we can talk about your problem. You know? uh, but to be honest, I feel that that died down pretty quickly. I think mm-hmm. we've always had a certain amount of, of backlash, let's say, or, or misunderstanding. You know, Why is this necessary? And we really need to go back to the emotional element. Uh, what you know? Why is this difficult? You know, it's it's, it's about this emotional element. Mm-hmm. If I am a man and I'm in an organization and I've achieved a certain position, I want to believe that I have done this fairly. You know, that it was a meritocracy. Yeah. And if now you're telling me that you know there's some bias or there's something wrong with the system or we have to um, have a particular eye around pr- promotions and hirings based on gender that's going to sort of conflict with this idea that I got here through my own efforts. Uh, so I think that's part of, of the difficulty here in, uh, in, in working with this backlash. What we also need to be better at, and again, we're very much focused on initiatives. We know the challenge we have to do. Uh, you know, we, we think that everyone thinks like we do when we're in this field of inclusion and diversity. We need to be careful of our vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And, Again, a lot of our vocabulary comes from the United States. And I think in our industry, it's called an industry, inclusion and diversity industry. We don't do a good job with vocabulary. Mm-hmm. We tend to take scientific words, words from research, and yes. just throw them yeah, throw them into the workplace. And they are misunderstood. People don't understand exactly what's behind them. Often we make things too complicated. We use a word like intersectionality, which basically means I can be a gay man, a white man, an American, French, all at the same time. Yeah, it's not a complicated such a, a concept, and it actually came from a legal framework mm-hmm. initially. Uh, so I think by underlining that we're really trying to get inclusion for everyone, underlining already, you know, for, let's take that male majority. What has been designed around you already? What do you benefit from? Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe we don't need to use the word privilege because they don't. Immediately speaking, they may not understand this idea of privilege. But really, you know, getting people to understand that okay, what I have, yes, I actually would like that everyone to have that, mm-hmm. and getting them to realize that okay, maybe I thought everyone had those same advantages, but now I realize they don't. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I want to be part of a meritocracy. I want to be part of a group that is fair to everyone. So I think that's uh, how we can counteract that element. Also by getting men and male leaders involved and implicated in the in the pr- finding out the problems and finding solutions. You know, as I said, the our, our yeah. leadership program we include the managers there. That's one yes. example of that. Absolutely, and and it also doesn't have to be binary. Somehow I feel a lot of the conversations we're having around the workplace are always either or. Now it's. Either you work full-time at home or you come back to the office and are shackled again to your desk. No, and it's the same with meritocracy and having good DNI initiatives are not exclusive. You can have both at the same time. You can try to go out to universities and 
and and organize career days and and make you know the the way a company works in a male dominated sector more attractive to women and then hire the best candidate be it a female or a male so it it's not i think there's a I, and I totally love how you explained, you know, the vocabulary, the terminology. It seems to be abstract. It seems to be almost threatening to mm. people. And, and there's a lot of fear around, will I lose my job? Mm. Or will I have the skills? Do I have the skills to keep up and learn new behaviors? And I think a lot of the fear, once fear is triggered, then, okay, you know, goodbye, rational <laughs> thinking. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. Yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, you, I will say that inclusion by definition is and thinking, mm-hmm. not or thinking, yes. which is exactly as you say. And a really great example I find, you know, again, we come back to this equity. Mm-hmm. It's what is the different context? What are the different frames of reference? What is fair based upon these contexts, not in some absolute, which is actually my own frame of reference. Any absolute comes to my own frame of reference. So for instance, I remember a leader saying I have, he realized that he had an imbalance of gender in his team. Mm-hmm. Uh, he needed to add more women or non-binary people. And he knew that if he created a job opening, men would apply. Mm-hmm. So there was no problem getting a good flow of male candidates. Yes. Uh, for the On the female side, he knew that that would be difficult. So he made all of his proactive efforts on the female side. He reached out to someone on LinkedIn, leveraged that person's network. So for instance, you can find a candidate that fits the profile, maybe the expertise you're looking for. Maybe they aren't a perfect match for the profile. Maybe they're too senior or or too junior. But you can send the opportunity to that person and say, you know, we have this opening. We very much want to have a balance of candidates so that we can choose the best person for the job. Would you mind you know, sharing this among your network, especially with um, any women you know who could be interested, so that we can make sure we have a balance of candidates. And usually, they're they're very you know happy to do so. They think it's great that you're concerned about having this balance. And then, yes, you get a balance of candidates, and you can truly choose the best person for the job. So that's really the the best practice that I promote in how we have this and thinking of the best person and a diverse slate of people. That's great. I love it. It's so simple, so pragmatic, yet very, very effective. Now, I have another question for you, Eric, uh, around accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, in your experience, not necessarily with Schindler, but in, in general with, with your previous roles as well, and, and you know, you're you learning about these things and, and seeing from your peers, um, how can organizations build accountability to senior leaders or managers? around this without them feeling again cornered Mm -hmm. uh you know do i have to now also you know my job is here to make elevators or cars or trucks Mm. now is it also my job to run a daycare or you know so 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 how how can you break through and and convince them that you know they can become better managers as a result so it's also in their interest to have these kpis or performance indicators somehow linked to them Right. Uh, for one, I think it's important to recognize that fear or frustration you just mentioned. And so often we don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say, you know, we think you're a bad person because you haven't done this already. And as you say, you know, I came into this job really thinking about elevators or engineering, you know, and so it's a learning path to realize that it's more complicated with, about that and that these soft things that maybe as an engineer, you thought, why do we even talk about that? You know, no, it, it really has a hard impact down the road. So I think it's about creating that understanding that if we work with inclusion and diversity, it will actually solve other problems we have. Mm-hmm. It will solve problems around engagement. It will help us to be more innovative because more ideas are going to come on the table. Uh, it will help us better connect with customers because we understand that my frame of reference is not the same as the customer's frame of reference. I think what they're asking for is ridiculous, Mm. but to them, it's perfectly normal. So really underlining how we're not talking about doing something extra. This is actually going to help you meet the goals you already have. Then it can become very tricky in terms of KPIs. And I've seen organizations that can go too fast in really wanting to just hammer down the numbers that you have Mm -hmm. to meet. 
before leaders have understood or managers have understood why they need to do this or how to do it. It's very frustrating to be given a target Mm -hmm. when you feel, I can't influence the outcome of this, or I don't, at the very least, I don't know how to do it. You know, some people think, well, it's a society problem or how can, you know, the engineering schools just aren't giving me the candidates. So they have to understand that they have a way, a means of impacting this. That's the first one. And I often say that it's a question of maturity as well. For instance, if you want to tie bonuses to KPIs, for instance, today, if we say to a leader, you know, part of your bonus is tied to the quality output of your organization, they would think that's perfectly normal because they understand how quality impacts the final result. Mm -hmm. If they don't understand why we're doing inclusion and diversity, either from a values point of view or from a business point of view, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm not saying it should only be from a business point of view, but also from a values point of view. But if they haven't understood why it's important, they're not going to understand why they need to meet a KPI. And they may be doing it for the wrong reason. They may even create the numbers, but in a way where the results fail mm-hmm. to sort of prove that you see, you forced me to do this. It didn't work out, you know. but mm-hmm. I did what you told me to do. So it's very important that we create this understanding. Also, you know, as an engineering company and myself as an engineer, we like to put numbers out there. For many things, we can't put a number on it. So we need anecdotal evidence. You know, if you were a lawyer, how would you show that we are an LGBT inclusive organization? What evidence would you give to convince a jury? Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to put a number on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are some ways to create this accountability. Also, for us in HR, it's very important for us to create feedback loops. That is also accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have a, a network on gender, what do the women of that network and the allies who are engaged on this topic, how do they feel the leaders are doing? Do they feel that the leaders are creating a gender balanced culture? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a KPI and there's no number on it. It's a feedback. Uh, so that's why our employee resource groups, or as we call them, employee inclusion networks are very mm-hmm. important to create these soft feedback loops. So all of those things add up to this accountability. That's great. I love this, all of this. Thank you very much for for answering this question because that's, for me, one of the kind of thorniest part of of creating senior or leadership buy-in. And then, because without that, it's it's just some lonely warriors, you know, who, who then take on all the personal work and burden of it. And then they burn out because it's, it's just them uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I would say one small thing that creates accountability is if your top leader says, I'm expecting this. Yes. And I'm going to ask you how you're doing on it. You know, even if it's just a conversation, that really changes mindsets and creates action. Yeah. I have seen many organizations that have taken these things very seriously was when the senior leaders or leaders were personally somehow affected when they had a very impactful personal experience in their life, you know, either had a, a child born with a disability or, you know, um, a child coming out uh, as gay or trans or or themselves having had an accident or, or a burnout. And, and um, it's, of course, we don't, you know, want to wish this necessarily, you know, challenging personal experiences on people just for them to change their minds and become more active. Um, but it definitely helps when, when they have had an emotional um, event like that or they have a personal story or a personal connection with the issue. But my question was uh, answered brilliantly by you about, you know, how do we create this with people who, you know, who, who may not have had this personal experience. So it's very difficult maybe for them to put themselves in the shoes of others. But if they can understand that this is an organizational objective, it's, it's this, this suits them and the organization and the team and, and society. And, and again, these anecdotes, then we can bring this issue really closer to them. Hmm. And I think, you know, when I speak about the topic, oh, I, you know, I may be a wonderful speaker, but people are like, you're paid to say that, you know, uh-huh. so there's always a bit of a suspicion about uh-huh. what I'm trying to sell, let's say. But when another leader, when one of our, our, our leaders or an executive talks about the topic, um, 
then the message comes across more, let's say, more authentic because they're not being paid necessarily to say that. So we had recently, uh, we had a task force on disabilities inclusion. And the executive sponsor of that task force shared an incident where someone became disabled in that office. And he realized that the getting into just the restrooms, the toilets was practically impossible for this person. And he had to have an emergency crew come in and redo the doors. And that was a real lesson for him. So just when he tells that story to another executive, it's going to be extremely powerful. So that story sharing is definitely an element for us to create this other frame of reference. Yeah, Even though we can't all experience all these individual stories, but we can hear about them. So thanks for this. I think that was a very, very good example as well. Um, maybe we have two more questions, time for two more questions. Um, I would like to ask you about uh, new ways of working, flexible working, mm. the pandemic, mandatory yes. teleworking. Yes. How do you see that intersects with your diversity and inclusion efforts and initiatives and 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 where do you see maybe the, the next few months on, on, on how they can link up, how they can, because we know from research that teleworking may not necessarily be the best, you know, option for women who have childcare responsibilities or, or household chores, especially in cultures where society and men expect them to do that. But somehow it also became a bit of an equalizer. Mm. What what is your take on on you know what happened and what's still happening and how that's going to have an impact for your initiatives in the future? Yeah, that's a great question because it's a huge topic and a lot of people, us included, are really looking into this to see how do we figure this out. It the I would say this this hybrid model that everyone's talking about going forward, and you know we haven't even experienced a hybrid. Well, we, we it was sort of you know one or the other for the past year. You were either on-site or you were remote. Uh, Now it's going to be more complicated because it's going to be mixed. So there are many intersections with diversity elements and inclusion. You know, as you mentioned on gender, uh, and one is if we are in a mixed situation, are women going to be more tempted to do more working from home and therefore be less visible? You know, Will the leaders see the results of what they're doing, especially combined with the fact that we know that women tend to be less promotional about the work they're doing? It's more like, you know, this is normal for me to do my work and and here it is, and I'm not going to make any fanfare about it that apparently study shows more common among among men. Uh, socioeconomic differences. You know, we were, in a way, the office is a great equalizer because Everyone has a desk. If you're talking about, you know, an off, again, an office environment, we have the same equipment, we have the same uniforms. Uh, even over time, we've actually downplayed hierarchy. You know, even leaders now sit in open spaces, so more and more, it is something that is equitable for everyone. Our home offices are very much unequitable, and they can also be unhealthy. Uh, so that's a real question. How do we? And it's, you know, it's not our property as a company. It belongs to the employee. So what is the way that we can influence, nudge, support, what is actually needed there, what's actually happening? All of those are big questions that need to be resolved there. Uh, Things like generations, younger employees who may not yet have families, who may have smaller apartments or smaller houses, you know, may be wanting to spend more social time at work or after work. So they may have a stronger network among let's say people from the younger generation, if mid-career who may have more family responsibilities or older employees decide, oh, it's not really worth it for me to make the trip into the office, are we going to have less connections between the generations because of this? Mm-hmm. Um, disabilities, there it can be actually an equalizer. I often say that in so many of these virtual meetings, we don't think about it, but I don't know, even more than usual, if the person I'm speaking to has a disability. You know, if we think about mobility, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, we're generally we're sitting down, so we don't know this. Uh, someone who has a mobility challenge, you know, getting to and from work, if we allow remote working, then that's a big advantage for them. So, you know, how do we take that into account? And again, if we go back to the office in a hybrid model, if we don't want the office to be half empty, we probably have to think about flexible seating. And you know, that's not anything new. 
But in that element, we also need to think about adaptations of, of workstations. You know, if you have a disability, does that mean you can't move around like your colleagues? Are you going to be alone when they've all gone to this other fun section with couches and everything? How, how does this work? So these are some of the, the things we have to figure out. Even LGBT, uh, a lot of people may not be out depending on the country they're in, etc. When we're having a video meeting like this, what if my spouse walks by behind me? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, do you explain who is that? You know, so uh, some elements like this that mm-hmm. you maybe not even think about. Um, also, uh, our field staff and our office staff. Typically, you know, we have a lot of technicians who are going out to service customers. They come back into the office from time to time, and that's when they can interact at the coffee machine or you know over a work discussion with our office staff. Now, mm-hmm. if those people are remote. We're, we're having less and less interaction between the field mm-hmm. and the support staff or the office staff. So all of these are real challenges, even as we know this creates opportunities. It creates opportunities in terms of uh, different nationalities, for instance, because we don't uh, require people to move to a different country or to move to a different city mm-hmm. in order to take on a job if we allow for remote working, for instance. So there's lots of opportunities and also lots of challenges that we need to mitigate as we put this model into practice. Absolutely. Now, before we go to the last question, uh, Eric, would you like to share with our audience uh, where they can maybe read more about your work, where they can connect with you? Sure. Yeah, we have. We're actually redoing our website right now, so you may have to navigate around to find our inclusion and diversity pages. There's a, a really good section under sustainability there, at the moment. Um, so on our Schindler.com website, you can look there. Also, you can. Find me on LinkedIn, Eric Howard Way, with uh, Head of Inclusion and Diversity at Schindler Group. So I'm happy to exchange with anybody that would uh, be passionate about the topic. Great. Thank you. So the last question is always the same here on our Work Life Hub podcasts. Um, If I could just ask you for one advice that you feel you would now like to impart on other current or future DNI leaders uh, that they should be focusing on, they should be aware of. What would be your kind of key insight or your main takeaway? Mm, yeah, I would say often inclusion and diversity or diversity and inclusion leaders feel they need to get this holy grail of the ultimate business case mm-hmm. to finally convince people what they need to do. Yes, you need a basic business case to show the impact, to show that this is not going to harm the business at least and going to create extra work for them. But recognize that the real issue, the real blockage is this emotional issue. So focus also very strongly on the values and the fairness impact and show how this this topic represents areas where we need to improve our fairness, our equity. Uh, everyone wants to be a part of a meritocracy where they get to where they are fairly. So I think that is a stronger connection than the business case. Even if often the leaders will they'll throw up the business case question, but it's usually a smokescreen or a roadblock because there's this emotional element behind it. So find a way to get into that emotional element and get them engaged. It's mm-hmm. their engagement that is really the success factor, more so than the particular type of activity or initiative you're doing. It's if the leaders are engaged and that's going to be making that emotional connection with them. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for coming on the podcast, accepting our invitation. I, for one, really enjoyed this conversation with you. And there were so many, you know, key insights that you shared so generously that I'm going to take away from this conversation. And I'm sure our audience as well. And I just want to wish you really the best of success with this role, with your initiatives uh, going forward. Thank you, Anus. It's really great for me to join you and uh, look forward to hearing more sessions.